Welcome to episode seven of my Between the Levees podcast. Today we're joined by Sherry Felder, who works at Channel Shipyard in, uh, in, in Houston, Texas. Sherry, thank you for joining me. Great, Tim. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've listened to some of the uh, podcasts you've already done with some of the folks that I know, and I think it's a great project. So I, my hat's off to you for doing this. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Let's uh, let's start off where it began. Where were you born? Okay. Well, I was actually born in Altadates County Hospital, Alameda County. My dad was uh, in the Navy and was based at Treasure Island out in San Francisco. And so I was born while they were living out there. Um, and both my mother and father were from Mississippi. From Mother was from Macomb and daddy was from Summit, Mississippi, you know, small towns. And when daddy, he was in the Korean War and when he got out, we moved back to Baton Rouge and he finished his last two years at LSU and then moved back to Mississippi. His parents had a big farm and they needed him to come back to the farm. So we went back to Mississippi. So I grew up on a farm in Mississippi. We raised corn and soybeans and had a big beef cattle operation. We also had a a uh, cattle auction every Thursday from where people from all over or several counties would come and bring their livestock for sale. So as a little girl, I would, would go there to, to visit on Thursdays. And then when I got old enough, I would work in the office. And so, you know, loved, I was the oldest of four children. I have two sisters and a brother and just loved growing up on the farm. It was you know, I think different for, you know, my siblings than it was for me. They were much younger than I was. And so the world had kind of changed and there were many more activities that they were involved in. But I, I literally spent a lot of time on the farm, rounding cattle, riding horses, that kind of thing. So that was my growing up experience. I had the great pleasure of knowing my grandparents. They all lived close by. Um, my father's parents actually lived out on the farm as well. So, I mean, I saw them on a regular basis. And it was just a great way to grow up, actually. And how, how old were you? This is from San Francisco to Mississippi, you said? Yes. How old were you at that point? Well, when they moved back, um, I was probably about one or two when they moved back to Baton Rouge so Daddy could finish his last two years at LSU. And then by the time he got out and we moved back to the farm, I was like five years old, I think. And so, you know, lived in Mississippi from then on till I went off to college, so. I'm sure the, the culture shock from San Francisco to Mississippi would have been less severe stopping in Baton Rouge first, well, and you were so young. So. Absolutely, the, I will tell you, you know, my mother, you know, while well, my mother and father both grew up in the Macomb Summit area, and and my mother just adored San Francisco. And so my, you know, my grandparents would tell a funny story that when, you know, daddy got out and it was time to move back toward home, she really didn't want to leave. And so my grandparents had to go out there and say, now, Nancy, I mean, you've got a child and a husband, so you've got to come back. So, so she did, but she dearly loved those years that she was out there. So, yeah, she still talks about that. So what was life growing up at five years old on an on a active cattle farm? Uh, it, you know, it was just, it was great. And having all my grandparents around, I would, you know, my mother's parents lived in town and then my father's parents lived out on the farm. So I would see them all every week, you know, and have dinner with my mother's parents in town on Thursdays, which was cattle auction night and, and daddy wouldn't come home till very late. And then on weekends, I would be across the lake with my father's parents and 
you know, it was just great on weekends. My mother was not a person who really enjoyed television and she didn't think we needed to sit in front of a television. So on Saturdays, as soon as she fixed breakfast, unless it was storming rain outside, she would open the back door and send us all outside and say, come home at dark. You know? So we would play and ride horses and, and that kind of thing. And it was just, to me, it was just a great way to, to grow up. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really did. It was just great. And then as I said, when I got older, I could work on Thursdays at the sale barn, helping to, to um, you know, when the cattle buyers for all the big companies would come to check out all the hundreds of head of cattle that they would buy, all the tickets had to be filled out and the, the uh, vaccination tickets attached and all of that. And so that's kind of what I did. So I, I worked at the sale barn from the time I was old enough to stand on a stool over the counter, you know, so, and it was just, it was also a, a wonderful way to, to grow up, frankly, so. Sure. It sounds like you had a pretty busy, uh, busy life at home. What, what about academics? Were you drawn to anything in school? Uh, well, I was a pretty good student, actually. And, you know, we living out in the country, there was a rural high school. Uh, we all went to Summit to the elementary school. And then when it came time for high school, the big school, the main school was in Macomb, but we lived in the rural school district. So I actually had to pay tuition to go into town. It was $8 a month that moved up to $12 a month, which is mind boggling, you know, at this point in time. But and went to Macomb High School, which was one of the best rated high schools in the state for sure. And uh, was a pretty good student, was involved in all kinds of student activities, you know, the yearbook and all those, the student council. I was an officer on the student council. And so, I mean, I had, a, had great high school years too. So I enjoyed it very much. And when it was time to think about college, and I can honestly tell you, I don't remember why that it came into my head that I needed to go to Vanderbilt in Nashville, but that's what I decided I was going to do. So I, I was fortunate that um, I was able to get into Vanderbilt, but I can remember when I went up for my interview, um, my mother and daddy and I went up in January before I graduated from high school and I had my interview and my tour and that kind of thing. And the, the counselor that, that interviewed me kept asking, where else have you applied? And I said, nowhere, I'm coming to Vanderbilt. And I could tell she, you know, she was very, <laughs> you really need to apply some other places too. And I said, no, this is where I'm coming. And fortunately for me, it all worked out. And I went to Vanderbilt, which is just a great college. And I had four wonderful years there. So very you don't know what the draw was originally to Vanderbilt? No, how I, you ended I, mean, up? I knew Vanderbilt was a good school, you know, but I didn't know anybody who went there. I, you know, had no friends that had gone there before me. And in my, you know, from where I was from in Macomb, I mean, everybody else in my class was either going to Ole Miss or Mississippi State. And of course, we were all brought up on LSU football. So when I told my daddy I wanted to go to Vanderbilt, I mean, his comment was, well, they don't have a football team. <laughs> so, Anyways, well, Dave, they got a great basketball team. You'll just have to come watch basketball. So uh, I really just, I knew it was a good school, but I, I just got it in my head. That's where I wanted to go and uh, was able to get in, you know, so that was great. And uh, I loved every minute of it. I really did. What did you study? And did that change over the four years? Well, it did. I went there with the intention of studying biology. And, you know, my freshman year, I took some lab courses and all, but they make you take some other courses that are nothing to do with what you intend to major in. And I took some art courses and 
the professors were great. And so I ended up when I left Vanderbilt with a degree in African art, so, which totally okay. you know, blew my daddy's mind. He thought, oh my God, you know, what are you ever going to be able to do with that? You know, this education costs a lot of money and what are you ever going to be able to do? But I totally shocked him. Um, when I graduated, I moved back to uh, Macomb, my mother's mother. Uh, was ill and needed someone to live with her at that point. And so I did. I moved home and stayed with her for about a year. And after she died, I was able to get a job at the New Orleans Museum of Art cataloging their African art collection. So my no dad kidding. was totally blown away that I actually got a job doing uh, something with that major. So, and it was just great. Uh, the museum was great fun. I went to work there the year that the King Tut exhibit was was traveling around the country and was there at the time. So I was able to enjoy all of that and you know, had a great staff, made some good friends and and it was a, a great experience. And you know, it was a it was a great way to spend a few years getting my feet on the ground. And and then one year uh, a group of I'd been there about four years, I guess, and a group of businessmen in New Orleans doctors, lawyers, um, accountants decided to promote professional rodeo. Now, as you can imagine, New Orleans is not really a rodeo town, <laughs> but, but they thought, no, we need to do this. So they hosted a party, a kickoff party at the museum, because for the first time in years, there was an exhibition of works by Remington and Russell. So they had this party. And of course, since I worked at the museum, I went. And I offered to volunteer during the rodeo because I kind of grew up around all of that. My father actually rodeoed. So I did, I volunteered that first year. And then before the next year's rodeo, the, the chairman of the board of that rodeo committee approached me and offered me a job directing the rodeo. Well, I, you know, what do I know about directing a rodeo? Absolutely nothing, but they offered me more money than I'd ever heard of. I, at the museum, I was in a civil service position, making about $400 a month and my rent was three, you know, so I was eating right. popcorn to survive. Right. So I said, well, you know, why not? I've always been a person who looks for a new challenge, that kind of thing. So I said, all right. So I did. So for the next couple of years, I directed professional rodeo. I worked with the PRCA. I worked with the stock contractors. I booked the entertainment. I put the program together, you name it, I did it. There was only one other person who actually was in New Orleans area, because I, I live in New Orleans actually, so uh, who was there to kind of help with the rodeo. All the other directors of the rodeo ran other businesses and some of them you know, were from different places. So I pretty much did the whole thing. Well, as I said earlier, New Orleans is not a rodeo town, so after the third year of rodeo, it, you know, we're really not going anywhere with this. So we need to just call this off and, you know, no more rodeo in New Orleans. And at that time, that year, Dennis Steger uh, was the chairman of the board of the rodeo. Jim Farley, who's in the industry for many, many years, was also a director of the rodeo. And, and Dennis had seen how hard I'd worked the last few years. And he said, look, you know, we need you. Dennis had a, a marine brokerage company at the time. It was before he'd actually bought the shipyard. And he said, we need you in our industry. You know, you're a hard worker and we just need you in the maritime industry. And I, you know, what did I know about towboats and barges? Nothing, you know, about the same amount I knew about rodeo. But 
Anyway, he had some very good friends, Bill Johnson and Val Slicko, who were leaving Ingram Barge in Nashville to move back to New Orleans to open the Marine Division, the Torco Oil Company. <clears throat> so he called them and said, you've got to hire this girl. So I, they did. And for about a month or so, I guess, um, they were still in Nashville getting ready to move to New Orleans. And so I was in our office, it was downtown, uh, on Common Street. So I was in the office by myself, you know, and the phones would ring and it would be boats. We had two boats at the time, uh, the Torco Houston and the Torco Orleans. And boats were calling, needing crew change and groceries and orders and all that sort of thing. And Bill Johnson sent me a copy of the Inland River Guide and said, just call people in here and they'll help you. So I did, you know, and one morning about two, I think it is, my phone rang and it was the captain on the Torco Orleans. His name was Raymond Pixley. He's from Pennington, Texas. His nickname was Gator. And he said, Miss Sherry, are you busy? And I said, no, just sleeping, you know? And he said, well, you, you might want to come on out here. And he was over just below Bertuzzi Construction, at, at Bertuzzi Construction, just below the Hugh Pilong Bridge, trying to build his northbound tow that I had you know, given him these barges. So I said, I'll be there in about 20 minutes. So I got up and I got dressed and I went out there and he was trying to put this tow together. I had built loads, empties, deck barges, hopper barges, lash barges, you name it. And I booked it. I mean, a barge was a barge to me. I had no idea. So instead of, you know, calling my boss saying, who is this dummy you've got giving us orders, he spent about four and a half hours as the sun was coming up, walking that toe, explaining how it worked, high-low couple, couplings, efficiencies, differences in barges. And I can remember to this moment, that aha moment, and wow, this is so incredibly cool. And... So a few weeks later, when Bill and Val had finally moved into New Orleans, they could, Bill could hear me on the phone when the boats would call in. And he called me in and he said, you, you really have gotten into this. You really like this. I said, I think it's just the Bob. It's just great, you know. So he said, well, go out and see it. We can hire another office manager. So I got to ride our boats for I don't know, on and off for a couple of years. And I would sit in the wheelhouse and, you know, listen to the captains and the pilots and learn about, you know, watching, you know, buoys tail and currents and sets on bridges. And I spent time out on the deck learning how you put it all together and in the engine room. And, and I can tell you that nobody ever made me feel like I didn't belong there because I was a girl or anything else because I so respect the work that all these folks do, uh, it's just amazing right. to me and still is 40 something years later. So I was able to, to see it, you know, which is kind of unheard of, I guess, at the time. I mean, a lot of dispatchers didn't get to go out and do that and certainly not the, the women who were dispatching. So I was able to do that. And then Val Slicko, who was our sales guy, started taking me with him on sales calls. You know, our, our Customers were, you know, Texaco, BP, Amico, Shell, all those guys, because we had tank barges, and we also had a uh, an aggregate contract uh, to move aggregate down the river for Bertusi, who had jobs, for, you know, for the Corps of Engineers. So I got to go up to the quarries and see how the, the toes were all put together. So when you come down the river, you can peel off strings, and uh, it was just great. So I, I started calling on all the, the customers as well. 
And then after a couple of years, Torco uh, Oil Company was owned by a fellow named Tony Tortorello. Uh, the company was based in Chicago. And Tony felt like Chicago was about the only city in the world. And so he decided that we needed to move up there. So Bill Johnson and I did. We moved to Chicago. Bill was the president of, of uh, the Marine Division. And so I moved up and to keep you know dispatching and handling all the, the movement of our, our toes. And um, after about a year, I moved up there in 85, January of 85. And after about a year, Torco ended up selling their marine equipment. They also had terminals and gas stations and things like that. And how, and how many? Yeah. How many barges did, uh, did, uh, you, did we, the company own? We, we didn't have but eight barges and chartered in four more tank barges. And then, of course, the, the aggregate contract, we didn't own those barges. We moved them for other, you know, I think they were Ingram barges, if I remember okay. correctly, that Bertusi had on charter. So, so sorry, um, 1985. Karen 1985. Orleans. So I moved up there in January of 85, and then I moved back to New Orleans in January of 86 because they decided uh, to get out of the Marine end of the business. And so they, they had me dispatching. They also did some Great Lakes moves with ships. And, you know, I had one a month. I was pretty much bored out of my mind. So anyway, I moved back to New Orleans the following January and said, all right, you know, I don't want to get out of this industry. What do I do next? And just one morning the phone rang and Charlie Metcalf, who owns St. John Fleet up in Garyville, who is a, a friend that you know, I'd gotten to know over the years, um, called me and they needed a dispatcher. And said, you know, I really would like for you to come and help dispatch at the fleet. And I thought, oh God, you know, I really didn't know much about, I knew nothing about fleet dispatching actually, but, and I lived in Gretna and of course the fleet was up in Garyville. But anyway, he talked me into it and I'm very glad he did. I worked a 10 day on, three day off, 12 hours a day shift. Uh, so I would drive from Gretna up to Garyville and uh, do the dispatching and learn so much about fleeting operations and deliveries to terminals and tow building and tow breaking and all of that. And it was just a, a great experience. And after a year or so, I mean, I got really tired of the, the drive and the, the schedule was just grueling uh, to me. And so uh, Charlie and Sammy Zito, who had Ruby Longbridge Fleet, formed another company called Riverside Ventures. And so I was able to move down to the Ruby Longbridge Fleet, which is a little bit closer to my house in Gretna, and you know, work from there, still dispatching. And that time, um, Valley Line, well, Ingram had the had the, the contract basically to move the coal barges over to all the power plants in Florida. And somehow Valley Line, you know, was able to get a little piece of that. And so we moved all those barges over to the Florida power plants from them, for them. And so I had said, yes, I'll stay until that contract is up. So, which is about another year, I guess it was. So after that, I was just exhausted and needed a break. And so I, um, I left there and just kind of went home for a little while, about a year, I guess it was. And then I had a call one day from Jack Faulkner, who was an equipment broker, and he had a friend, Bill Young, who had owned uh, St. Philip, uh, it was a shipyard in Tampa. And Bill had sold his shipyard to George Steinbrenner. 
and had a non-compete and so he needed to do something else. So he decided to start an inland towing company to run from, well, as it ended up, we, we really ran the West Canal from New Orleans, you know, pretty much sometimes down to Corpus, but mostly between Houston and New Orleans and started okay. with one boat. And that was 88, I think it was when we started, uh, started on Marine Inland. And I was there for about 10 years. And by the time we, I left, we had grown to about 10 boats and left Marine Inland. Uh, Bill had brought his son in. Prior to that, his brother-in-law ran, was running Marine Inland. And, and then George left and Bill's son came in and I, you know, it just wasn't, I, I really, I just wasn't happy with the way things were running. And so um, I left and took another little break. And then I went to work for Walter Blessy at Blessy Marine Services. And was there about a year. Uh, my husband was diagnosed with cancer. My, Ron had, was a hard hat deep sea diver and worked for Taylor Diving and you know, spent most of his career in, in the North Sea, Mediterranean. And anyway, when he was diagnosed with cancer, I just, I really, you know, we knew he was gonna be, he wasn't gonna be around for very long. And so I just needed to be home with him. So I left Blessing and was home with Ron for about a year. And toward the end, Dennis called me and said, Sherry, it's time that you came to work with me. So he said, whenever, whenever you're ready, you know, I want you to come to work at Channel Shipyard. So I did. And at that time, um, well, Ron died in early, well, he died in early February of 2000. And so I started work uh, for Dennis. At that time, we also had a small shipyard in Wagaman here on the Mississippi River. And so I was there every day. And then in 84, we shut that shipyard down. Uh, it was just a repair yard. We did no cleaning or anything. Channel Shipyard in Houston uh, is actually a cleaning facility. So we clean tank barges and we also have Lynchburg Shipyard, which is a repair facility. You know, we're not a new build yard or anything like that. We're just repairs. So in 84, we shut the, um, the yard down here and got rid of all of our equipment. Our office had been on a barge on the river. And so we sold everything and bought a little office condo. And George Jansen, who had been a partner in the shipyard, started just brokering equipment, barges, cargo, that kind of thing. And so we shared the office here. And um, over after when Tr Katrina hit, um, Harbor Towing, uh, had lost their office out in Gentilly and we had room in our office. So they moved in here. And then after a year or so, we ended up selling the office to them. So now I just rent an office from Harbor Towing here in New Orleans. We're on Causeway Boulevard. And I, you know, work for the shipyard, but I handle, you know, the governmental legislative affairs stuff. I represent the company on all the national trade association boards and that kind of thing. So I'm on the road a lot. I'm treasurer of the Coast Guard Foundation. So I'm all over the country visiting Coast Guard bases and sectors and cutters and, you know, doing all of that, which is, it's a great organization and so, so gratifying. I mean, the work we do to raise money to help the men and women of the Coast Guard, things the appropriated budget can't do, can't provide for, we do. We do a lot of fundraising and it's just very, very gratifying. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be going in actually as chairman of Waterways Council. And of course, our 
our whole mission is to advocate for an efficient, well-maintained waterway. So that's a, a major part of what I do. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to represent the company on just about every group there is over the years. Uh, early, early on, I was often the only woman in the room, and now there are lots of women in the room, and that's great too. So it's just been a super career, and it's not over yet. People ask me because all of my friends are starting to retire, and I said, Sherry, when are you going to retire? You know, as long as the Steger boys will let me work, I intend to do it because I just absolutely love what I do. I love the industry, I love the people. And it has been, while it was very, it was serendipity that I ever got into this industry, it has been an absolute gift and a total joy. So I, I can't imagine not doing it anymore. So I'll hang in here as long as they'll have me. Sure. Well, all right. Backtrack a little bit. I had some questions. How many boats? Uh, you said Inland Marine was the company started to run the West Canal? Marine Inland, Marine Inland Transportation. We didn't, we had no barges. We just, we towed other people's barges. We started with one boat, the Marine Runner is our member. What, uh, what horsepower? Person, sorry? What horsepower was that one? 800. Yeah, that was back in the day when people were running a lot of 800s in the canal. And I don't, you know, I'm not even sure they're even doing that much anymore. You know, horsepower's gotten bigger. Is, or was it six packs both directions? Yes. Yes. We did a lot of salt mine runs. Um, and at the time, when Den years and years ago, Dennis had worked at Ingram, and back then you had to have the uh, the permit or the certificate. I'm not, I can't even remember what they called it exactly to tow lash barges, you know, the lighter aboard ship barges. And when Dennis left Ingram, he somehow took that permit with him. So he started his brokerage company, mainly towing or, or uh, towing lash barges. And it kind of grew. And then over time, you didn't have to have that special permit to, to tow lash barges anymore. So our very first tow was know, lash barges out of Houston back to New Orleans. I'll, yeah, I'll never forget that because they were kind of tricky in the canal, you know, because you have to string them out and they were kind of <laughs> awkward. But we were known for our, our towing of lash barges. But then, yeah, we also, you know, pretty much all the other barge lines, we towed for them as well. Okay. Well, if we can turn topics backtrack sure. a little bit, uh, where'd you meet your husband? In a bar. Um, I, I love to dance. And back when I met him, which would have probably been 79 or 80, I guess it was, country music you know, it was huge in New Orleans. And there were all these giant bars with giant dance floors that were built for country Western. And I loved it. And I literally went dancing seven nights a week. I've never been in better shape in my life before or since. And one night he asked me to dance and we danced and he said, you know, would you like to go to dinner? you know, some, you know, tomorrow night and go dancing again. And I said, sure, absolutely. And we did. And I'm not a bit ashamed to tell you that I went home with him that next night and lived with him for the next 26 years. It was just meant to be, you know, I wasn't really yeah. looking for a husband and he wasn't looking for a wife, but we were just, uh, it was meant to be. So that's right. how we met. And and what was good about it is I was very independent. I lived by myself forever. And, you know, he was gone for months and months at a time. And then I, when I got into the Marine business, you know, I was traveling a lot and 
So it just kind of worked out when we were home together, it was just great. And so it wasn't like all of a sudden two people who were used to living alone, all of a sudden had to be together all the time. So it really was, a, it was just a, a you know, worked out very well, so. Well, tell me about uh, his career. Ah. Well, uh, Ron actually was a draftsman, but he liked to sport fish, dive fish, you know, spear fish. And he belonged to, there was a club here called the Hell Divers. And it was a sport fishing, you know, diving uh, club. And they would go out to the rigs and spearfish and things like that. And one of the guys that was in that club said, you know, worked for Taylor Diving, which was a Halliburton company and said, Ron, you know, you really ought to think about, you know, going to work as a professional diver. And so he did and spent his career working for Taylor Diving, uh, which was over on Engineers Road. They were a Halliburton company. And, and Ron, you know, did a lot of uh, saturation diving, deep sea diving. He dove on shell cognac at a thousand feet. Um, and as I said, spent a lot of his career in North Sea uh, doing that. And and liked it a lot, you know, very dangerous job. It, it's, um, you know, he had several friends over the years that died while they were working, but but he, uh, he, was, he was very careful, quite often the company, um, when there'd be lawsuits or whatever, he took meticulous notes, kept daily diaries when he was working and very often those diaries would be subpoenaed or he'd have to testify. But he, you know, he, he liked it. He enjoyed it. He was good at it. And he always said, diving is just transportation. You've got to be able to do something when you get there. So, you know, welding or things like that. So, yeah. I don't know. What kind of, was he just working on call or how did that hitch work? You said in the North Sea and all that. Well, what they would do is you were, when you weren't, if you were home, you were basically on call, but they would tell you, all right, so you've got you know, you'll be home three weeks. Now, depending on that, as he got older, they did not call him quite as often. But, you know, when he was first into it for many, many years, I mean, they would, they would say, all right, you know, you can, your, your time off will be three weeks or a month or whatever it is. But then when you got called, it might be to go to the North Sea for six months. So right. it just depended on what the job was that came up. And sometimes there were some last minute calls that somebody that was supposed to go couldn't or you know somebody you know uh pulled out of a job at the last minute or got over there got sick they had to replace somebody so there was some last minute stuff but but uh yeah he it, and you'd be gone you know sometimes you'd be gone for three weeks sometimes you'd be gone for six months you just never knew and a lot of it was saturation diving so you lived in a chamber you know with three four five other guys which you know that always impressed me because i would go over when I'd be working on the chambers over at uh, the, the facility over um, in Bell Chase, I would sometimes go over and look and how they could live in those chambers like that. I have no idea in this world. It was just too claustrophobic for me. But but he did a lot of his work that was saturation diving and they had to live in those chambers, you know, while they were working. So Okay. Did you have any children? No. Uh, Ron was a little older than I, and when I met him, his children were grown. And I, you know, I had just started this career. They were not something I even thought about children. And I mean, he even said, you know, you need to think about this. And I did and just decided that wasn't something that I needed to do. So we did not have any. Well, tell me more, uh, if you can, about the, organ the organizations you're in now the, for the Coast Guard. And I think you, you mentioned a couple of others. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, over the years, uh, I think one of the first organizations way back yonder um, was the Greater New Orleans Barge Fleeting Association. And I was actually president of that organization for about three years, 83, 84, I can't remember now what years they were. But anyway, I was involved with them. I'm currently Secretary of Laws, which is the Louisiana Association of Waterway Operators and Shipyards. Our whole mission is to keep our eye on what's happening in Baton Rouge at the Capitol to make sure that our taxes don't go up and that kind of thing. Um, I'm a trustee of the National Waterways Foundation. Uh, the foundation's whole mission is to develop the data that the industry needs to be able to go to Congress uh, to say we need more money for the Coast Guard to keep waterways open. We sponsor, we raise money to then sponsor studies like the uh, Texas Transportation Institute and others to give us all the, the, the data and the information that we need so that we can you know, talk to reporters and Congress and say, all right, this is why we need more money for this waterway or that. They provide the the ammo actually for Waterways Council and AWO and any other organizations that, that need it, you know, that give us accurate information. Um, I've been on AWO's board over the years and AWO and, and Waterways Council are like sister organizations. We share some of the same members actually. Our missions are a little bit different. You know, and AWO focuses a lot more on regulatory issues whereas Waterways Council deals with Corps of Engineer and you know, dealing with Congress to make sure that we have waterways that are maintained, we have locks that are built. Um, our membership is a little more diverse, uh, which is great. We've got, of course, carriers, shippers, the ag groups belong to us, um, the construction trades belong to us, labor belongs, uh, environmental groups belong. So when we hit the hill together, it's, it's impressive because there's so many diverse organizations that say we've got to keep waterways open. This is right. how much it matters. You right. know? So, and so I'm very excited to be going in as president uh, in the next couple of weeks. Actually, we'll be in uh, Paducah. Uh, our current chairman, uh, Matt Ricketts, is president of Prounce, and he, uh, he wanted to host our last, our, uh, his last meeting there in his hometown of Paducah. So we've arranged to, to have our meetings uh, in conjunction with the uh, River Bell, the Siemens Church River Bell. And I think Frank had mentioned he's going to be receiving the Legend Awards, which is so exciting. Uh, back a few years ago, I was very, very honored to receive their Distinguished Service Award. And I just, you know, the lot I'm just honored to, to have that award. Um, this year, I was uh, given uh, the IMAX uh, Achievement Award, which was also a, a big thrill for my, you know, for the work that I do uh, advocating for the maritime industry. So I was very appreciative to receive that. I mean, it's, you know, it's always nice to be recognized for something you love to do, but uh, it was unexpected, but I, I really appreciate it. Um, a number of years ago, uh, well, it was 2017, I received the uh, National Rivers Hall of Fame National Achievement Award, okay. which was just great. So I, I hadn't been able to get up to Dubuque yet to see my name on the wall, but I'm looking forward to maybe doing that next year. But it, it's, you know, it's, it's nice to be recognized for, for things that you do, but it's always a surprise that, you know, but, but I just love doing it. You know, why should I receive an award? But, right. but it's very nice to do that. So, yeah.
for sure. Long time, I chaired uh, LOMARSAC here, um, which was the Lower Mississippi River Safety Advisory Committee. Um, it was a great organization. It was a national federal advisory uh, group that, you know, work, looks at safety issues on the Lower Mississippi River. Um, it became difficult for Department of Homeland Security to keep up with the um, appointing committee members every few years and reinstating charters and all of that. So a couple of years ago, um, and it was the last FICA out there. And so a number of years ago, the Coast Guard decided we're just not gonna go through that anymore. But I'm happy to say they have stood up a Harbor Safety Committee that is now in full swing and has pretty much taken the place of Lomar SAC and you know, will be able to operate without having to worry about public notices and having DHS appoint people and delays and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited because this, this lower river, this five-port complex area needs a, a harbor safety committee that people can participate in, can, you know, can comment on issues that when the Coast Guard needs people to stand up and say, all right, is this going to work or not work? So it's, it's exciting to know that that's happening again. So all good. Well, I have spoken with, uh, obviously, with Frank and Z-Dave, but I also have one with Jim Farley already. Oh, good. Oh, Can good. You... I'll look forward to listening to Jim's. I, you know, Jim, Jim got the Riverbell Award the same year that I received the uh, Distinguished Service Award. And it was just so exciting to be on stage with he and Dennis, because that's how it all started for me, you know, it was with Jim and Dennis at the rodeo. So it just, you know, to come back full circle and they are, you know, both such good friends and still are, I, you know, I talk to Jim from time to time and, you know, I try to see he and his wife, Linda, you know, now that they're living up in Whitefish. And Dennis also has a house up in Whitefish. So okay. I try to get up to visit and hang out with them when I can. But, you know, sure. Jim has been a good friend for a long time. Where did your path cross with Z and, uh, and Frank? Oh, Lord, since early days, you know, I mean, you can't help it. If, you, if you're involved in anything industry or go to any meetings, you know, you're going to run into one or the other of them. And, um, so I've, golly, I've known them both for well over 35 years, you know, so, and they've just been good friends forever. You know, one of the, one of the things that I feel so fortunate about was when I first started at Torco in the afternoons, Bill and Val, you know, the guys that I worked for would always walk over. Dennis actually owned a bar a million years ago called Liquid Assets. And it was right off of Poydras Street. And so every afternoon, we'd all go over there. And a lot of other, you know, Marine folks would come in and that sort of thing and sit and, you know, have a few drinks. And, and Merrick Jones uh, would always come in. And, you know, at that point, I didn't know who Merrick Jones was. You know, he was president of Canal Barge Company at the time. And, you know, and is a true icon of this industry. And of course, I didn't know who he was then. And I would sit there at the table and they would talk and he would say, now, Sherry, if you, if you need anything, you just call me. And so I, I would, I did. You know, I'd pick up the phone and call and Ms. Gahib was his secretary. And, and I'd say, Ms. Gahib, this is Sherry Fellers. Mr. Jones, about, honey, you just hold on. You know, I mean, she was the, the lion at the door, but she would always put me through and you know, and I'd ask him, I'm sure, some, you know, ridiculous questions, but he was always patient and kind and, and a great mentor, and Howard Brent would do the same thing for me, and, you know, it was years later when I, before I really realized what icons they were and that they were mentoring me, and I, it, it just meant 
everything. And, you know, it was probably part of the reason why I fell in love with this industry because they loved it so much and would share these fabulous anecdotes and stories. I mean, I could not help but love it all. So, you know, I was just so fortunate. And I, I believe that mentoring is very important. I, I try to do that myself for those that are interested in any, you know, advice I might be able to give or, and I've, I've really enjoyed it. You know, it's wonderful now to look at the young people that are coming into the industry. Um, you know, Mary McCarthy uh, and a group of other folks started this group called Admiralty. It's really about networking and it's younger people in the industry. They made me their very first legend, they would ask, folks that have been in the industry to come and talk about our stories, how did we start, you know, any advice, and I was the very first one, and I find it ironic they call us legends, but uh, but I did, and that group is still going strong, and then Casey Eckstein and uh, Jenna Goday started um, WEMOS, it's Women in Maritime Operations, it's now gotten huge, I mean, their chapters all over the place, I just went to a WEMOS uh, outing up at Port Allen Lock last week, um, you know, and there are these fabulous women, young young women that are, you know, loving the industry. And it just, it makes you feel really good. And about the future of the industry, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, it's all going to be okay. It really is. Right. No, my, uh, my coworker attended the Port Island visit. Yeah. And um, I actually sat down on this, this chat show with uh, one of the members from Corpus Christi. Wonderful. That's great. That's great. I, oh. I just think it's so cool, you know, that what they're doing and, and they do, um, you know, they do a lot of things that are educational. And even during COVID, they had, you know, some Zoom uh, web calls and things like that and had speakers and, you know, they really are trying to promote education amongst women in the industry, which right. is wonderful. Right. Wonderful. Well, yeah. in all the uh, all the spare time you may or may not have, what do you like to do outside of work and, and business? A sailboat race. I really yes, yes. I that was another thing. So after Katrina, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to protect the city of New Orleans and that kind of thing. So I was in because representing the navigation industry, I would sit in Corps of Engineers Corps of Engineer meetings. Oh, days on days on end and you know while there there were other folks there representing uh other grassroots organizations in the city you know what's the best thing for the city how are we going to do this you know we're going to have to build you know huge walls but they need to cross the river cross the intercoastal waterway how do we get barges through there so uh at one of these sessions uh at the coffee machine in between meetings you know you talk to other people who were there and so i met um, this fellow named Billy Marshall, and he was there representing uh, a grassroots uh, in, group here in, in the city. And so, you know, what would you be doing if you weren't sitting in this meeting? He said, oh, I sail a boat race. And I said, gosh, you know, that sounds great. You know, it really, really does. I mean, sailing was not my opportunity growing up on a farm in Mississippi. And I had friends who were members of Southern Yacht Club. And, you know, I'd been out to visit and have cocktails and things like that. And I, and I had sailed casually with folks. And so I said, you know, I, that, that might be something that would be good. You know, my husband had died and I, you know, I was just, I had a hole to fill. I really did. So at the time, the Commodore of the Yacht Club is Yama Bright, who was a Marine surveyor, you know, in our industry that I'd known forever. So I called Yama and I said, I'm, I'd really like to join the Yacht Club, but I really want to start sailing. And he said, no problem. So I did. 
And I started sailing with Billy. He's got, he lost his big boat during, uh, actually Rita. It survived Katrina, got destroyed in Rita. And so he has a smaller boat, a J-22 now. So I, I still sail with him. I do his bow, which means I get his spinnaker and his jib up and down. And he introduced me to other people with boats and they would invite you to sail. And so I sail on big boats and little boats and you know, I do a lot of regattas. I'm on our team racing team where other clubs around the country invite you to come and sail. And it's, you know, it's just, it's great. And to be out on the water is just wonderful. You can have a terrible day and go out on the water and it all gets better, you know? So it's been great and it kind of helps keep me in shape, you know, which is good. And it's a mental exercise. So it's a, it's a great sport and it's something you can do all your life. I mean, my friend Billy has been sailing since he was a young boy. He's 80 years old now. We still go out and sail. You know? So it's just, it's a great sport. It really is. So that's what I do when I can. Well, you do sound like you keep yourself pretty busy. I do. It's all good. Keep moving. And the older you get, the more important it gets to keep moving. So Right. Yeah. Well, I do appreciate your time. Absolutely, Tim. It's been delightful. I think what you're doing is super. I really do. And I look forward to going online and, reading, and hearing some of the other podcasts. So, Thank you very much. Yeah, good. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. You too.